This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, well, last week we had um, started into uh, the Noahic Covenant, the covenant with Noah, and we talked about the, uh, the flood itself, uh, and the, the judgment had come, uh, the waters receded, uh, Noah and his family got off of the ark, and that's about where we had reached last time, if I remember correctly. Um, so the, um, once Noah and his family have, you know, they've come through the flood, they get off the ark, and the very first thing that Noah does once he has uh, disembarked from the boat is that he offers a sacrifice to God. Uh, that's the very first recorded act of Noah after the flood. Uh, in Genesis eight nineteen. Uh, Noah and his family and all the animals leave the ark. And then immediately thereafter, in Genesis, 20, Genesis 8, verse 20, uh, Noah offers, uh, he builds this altar, and then he offers a sacrifice to God. And the offering of that sacrifice and God's reaction to the sacrifice are incredibly significant in an overall understanding of the Noahic covenant. Um, as I say in verse 20, Genesis chapter 8, uh, Noah builds this altar. He offers a sacrifice upon the altar. And then in verse 21, the scriptures say that the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Now, as most of y'all probably know, when it says that the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, uh, it means that God uh, acknowledged the sacrifice. He found it pleasing. It was acceptable in His sight. Uh, he was satisfied with this sacrifice that Noah had offered. And still there in the same verse, in verse 21, it's upon smelling that sacrifice and being satisfied with it that God blesses Noah. And through Noah, God also clearly is blessing all of mankind. Uh, if you look there in Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 and 22... Uh, the scriptures tell us this. Noah has just offered the sacrifice. And then in verse 21, The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Now, those two verses there, God clearly says that He never again will destroy all of the earth in judgment. He won't destroy the, uh, the inanimate creation, if you want to put it that way. And He also won't destroy all of the animals in judgment again. God's saying that He uh, will not again undertake that sort of a judgment. Instead, He says that He'll preserve the regularity, He'll preserve the order of creation. Uh, he speaks of preserving uh, order both on 
what you might call the micro level. Uh, he speaks of days and nights. You know, it's just a, a, a very, on a small scale, day and night. Uh, but he also speaks of preserving order on more of a macro level, on a, a larger level. He speaks of uh, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer. So both in the uh, regularly recurring days and the larger picture of the seasons, uh, God promises that He will preserve the order and the regularity of creation. Uh, upon smelling the sacrifice uh, that Noah has offered, God pronounces these blessings that very clearly are going to bless all of mankind. And when you continue on into chapter 9, that's the, those are the last two verses of chapter 8, when you move on into chapter 9, God begins to pronounce some blessings uh, that seem tailored more specifically to Noah himself. But even then, the blessings that are pronounced for Noah very clearly are relevant to all mankind. And it, it seems as if, uh, as Moses is writing Genesis under the inspiration of the Spirit here, that he's um, kind of intentionally highlighting this universal relevance and the universal applicability of the promises that God's making. Uh, in the first three verses of chapter 9, uh, you find the creation ordinances uh, being reiterated. Uh, you probably remember them. They were first given in the covenant of works. Uh, they were then reiterated in Genesis 3. And then again here, uh, the creation ordinances uh, come up again. Uh, in verse 1, uh, God instructs Noah to be fruitful and multiply. You have the creation ordinance of procreation uh, with the creation ordinance of marriage being implicit in that. Uh, down in verse 2, uh, God reaffirms man's dominion over the creation. Uh, now, at this point, it's you know, given the entrance of sin into the world, man's place of dominion, his role of dominion is marked by uh, fear and dread, as it's called in verse 2. Uh, sin has corrupted the peaceful dominion that had existed prior to the fall, obviously, but still there's that relationship of man having dominion over the creation. He's God's uh, vice region in the world. And then uh, in verse 3, God says that He'll provide food for man. He'll continue to care for man. Uh, so you have the, the creation ordinances in general uh, reiterated here. They don't receive a great deal of uh, attention. It's not really brought out in any great detail, uh, but the creation ordinances and the some of the general contours of the previous relationship between God and man are reiterated. Uh, God is reiterating what you might call legislation that applies to all of mankind. Uh, and in that, Moses, as he's writing Genesis, seems to be making the point that one of the effects of the Noahic covenant is that it intensifies and it perpetuates the obligation of all of mankind to God as their creator. Um, much has changed because of the flood and because of the Noahic covenant, but that has not changed. Uh, God still is claiming uh, dominion over all things. He's placing man under obligation to him. Uh, the Noahic covenant has both intensified and perpetuated the obligation of mankind to God. Now in that, certainly you see the prominence of what often are called the common grace elements of the Noahic covenant. Uh, the, they're elements of the covenant that very clearly impact all of mankind. They'll impact the reprobate as much as they impact the elect. 
the, the regularity of day after day after day and season after season after season, that uh, impacts and in a very real sense blesses uh, the reprobate as much as it does the elect. Likewise, uh, all men are called to these creation ordinances and obedience to them. Uh, so there's this universal applicability to the covenant. Uh, that universal applicability is also seen down in verses 5 through 7 um, of chapter 9. There God institutes and even really requires capital punishment in the case of murder. Uh, it's uh, a, a regulation based on the presence of the Imago Dei and man uh, is not something that's open to uh, interpretation or is, it doesn't vary depending on the, uh, the person in question. It's based on the, uh, the image of God in man. Uh, so clearly it's something that's binding on all of mankind. Uh, in verses 8 through 11, uh, again, you get uh, some sense of the creation-wide implications of God's promise. But then the, the, the breadth of the applicability of this Noahic covenant really is brought out pretty forcefully in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 9. Uh, there God institutes the sign of the covenant, uh, the rainbow, and the language that God uses while He's um, giving this sign is strongly uh, broad, if you want to put it that way. It, it clearly is embracing all of creation. Uh, in verse 12, God speaks of a covenant between me and every living creature. Verse 13, He speaks of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 15, uh, He refers to my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, He refers to the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, He speaks of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. And you get the, the sense there that the, Moses, as he's writing this and recording God's words, he's wanting to drive home the point that this covenant is embracing all of creation. Um, it's, God is establishing uh, some sort of relationship between himself and not just Noah, and not just Noah's family, but all of creation, all of humanity. Um, when you, you also get the sense, uh, the, the same sort of sense down in verses 18 and 19 uh, where it's pointed out rather self-evidently it seems uh, that Noah and his sons went on to populate the whole earth. You know, so in a real sense Noah is the ancestor of all humanity. So even if there is something that seems to pertain particularly to Noah uh, there's likewise a sense in which it would have relevance to everyone in a federal sort of way, in a headship sort of way because Noah is uh, the father of humanity uh, from this point forward. I guess his son's wives weren't his descendants so there's some other DNA coming in I suppose you could say uh, but uh, at least from an authority point of view, a federal sort of perspective, uh, Noah here is the, the head of all that will descend from him and so even the promises that seem to have just him in view have some applicability to everyone who comes after him. So it seems in, in, in any number of ways from any number of perspectives uh, the point is being rather strongly made that the Noahic covenant has real everyday sort of implications for all of humanity and certainly that continues up till today. Even today uh, even the most reprobate of humanity 
is affected hour by hour by the uh, results of the Noahic Covenant. Uh, the regularity of day after day and season after season affects everyone. It's, it's pretty undeniable. Uh, there's a, a staggering breadth to this covenant that God is establishing with Noah. Uh, what he's doing in his covenant with Noah uh, very uh, tangibly impacts all of God's creation. Uh, it's interesting to note, it seems to me, that this uh, universal applicability of the Noahic covenant and its, its role in God's uh, redemptive plan was something that, I guess rather obviously, was grasped by the apostles. Um, if you notice in verse 4 of uh, chapter 9, you find there one of the earliest instances of a dietary law. Um, back in verse 3, God had told uh, Noah that while he and his descendants are free to... In verse 3, he said they were free to eat meat. But then in verse 4 of chapter 9, God tells Noah that he and his descendants are not to eat meat that has its blood still in it. Uh, they're free to eat meat, but it can't have the life or the blood still in it. It's kind of a humanity-wide sort of dietary law. Now, do you all, just off the top of your head, do you have any idea where that same dietary law resurfaces? Certainly it's in the much more detailed Levitical code, but does that sound familiar, the dietary restriction that you can't eat food that has its blood still in it? right, the Jerusalem Council. Um, in Acts 15, in the early days of the church, when there was this uncertainty about exactly how some of the specific Levitical prescriptions applied to a church that now included Gentiles, um, and the Jerusalem Council, the apostles, were consulted about how to proceed, um, they responded by, on the one hand, reiterating the, the prohibition on idolatry and a call for sexual morality and things like that, but they also included the specific dietary restriction uh, that Christians were not to eat food that had its blood still in it uh, or that had been strangled. And that's in uh, Acts 15, verse 29. So the apostles, um, when they were dealing with the, uh, the movement of the church beyond the boundaries of Israel, um, they, in a sense, reverted back to this previous humanity-wide sort of dietary law. Um, there was a sense even at that point, uh, that God here was moving His redemption forward and was doing so in a way that temporally predated the narrowing to Abraham. Uh, and so th it was used even in, in a, a dietary law sort of way. Um, the the, the creation-wide implications of the, the covenant here were grasped by the apostles even at that early point. So uh, with, with all that in mind... Uh, it, it's clear that the Noahic Covenant is extremely broad. It's very expansive. It, it applies to all of humanity. Uh, all men, in a very real sense, are impacted by the covenant. And so it, it's understandable that when you look at different treatments of the Noahic Covenant, the emphasis seems to always be on the common grace elements of the covenant, the way that it uh, impacts all of humanity, the, the way that it um, in a sense, is uh, it fits under the covenant of grace in a thematic way, but it's not as narrowly focused as the other parts of the covenant of grace. You, you tend to get that emphasis in most um, works on the 
Noahic covenant. And you can see why that impulse is there. It's clearly a very broad covenant. But while all of that's true, and it certainly is true, it's undeniably a, an expansive covenant, uh, it, ha it reaches more broadly than the later manifestations of the covenant of grace. All that's true, but if, um, but if that's the only thing that you pull out of the Noahic covenant, uh, then it seems to me that you've missed r the real significance of the Noahic covenant. Um, if you limit yourself to that, you have really taken the legs off of the Noahic covenant and you miss, it seems to me, the real uh, purpose of what God is doing. Uh, and if you remember from a couple minutes ago, all of these common grace sorts of components, uh, the preservation of the seasons and the days and all that, uh, all those components, all of that uh, first came into view when Noah had offered the sacrifice to God. Uh, God accepted the sacrifice and then pronounced these blessings uh, back in chapter 8, verses 20 and 22, or 20 through 22. Now, if, if you look back at those verses again, uh, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, you see there's a detail there. It's a, a somewhat subtle detail. Uh, it's sometimes neglected, but it, it's critically important, it seems to me. Um, verse 20 Again, Noah builds the altar, offers a sacrifice on it. Then in verse 21, God smells the sacrifice. He's pleased with it. And therefore, he declares that he'll restrain future judgment of all of creation. And specifically, there in verse 21, God says this. He says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now, the, the New King James Version that I'm using uh, has, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. I think most of y'all are using the ESV, I get the impression. And the, the ESV rendering is better in that instance. Uh, it has, as y'all probably know from... Looking at it, it has, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, do you see the, the difference between those two translations? Uh, the rendering in the New King James Version presents God's restraining of judgment as occurring in spite of the sinfulness of man, um, although the imagination of man's heart is evil. Uh, the restraint is, recurring, is occurring in spite of man's sinfulness. Uh, you get the same idea in the NIV. Uh, it has, um, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil. Uh, but the rendering in the ESV presents God's restraint of judgment as occurring because of man's sinfulness. Um, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, the, re the judgment is being restrained because of man's sinfulness. Now, in the, in the Hebrew, the, the preposition there that's getting those different translations is just simply key. It's a you know, pretty basic preposition. Uh, and it seems to me best rendered in the, the way that the ESV does, for or because of, uh, expressing a, a relationship of causation and of positive causation. Uh, because of man's 
sinfulness, because of his heart's sinfulness, therefore God is restraining judgment. Uh, God promises to restrain judgment because men are sinful in their very hearts. Now, if you, if you think about it, that seems rather counterintuitive. Uh, the wickedness of man before a just judge ought to be a reason to bring judgment, not a reason to restrain judgment. If man's wicked, he gets judged. Um, that, that would seem to be the way that things ought to go. But there in verse 21... Man's heart wickedness is the reason for God's restraint. Not His judgment, but His restraint. And then in verse 22, as we've seen, God goes on to declare that He'll preserve the orderly progression of time. So because of the wickedness of man's heart, God will restrain His judgment while history moves steadily and predictably forward from day to day and season to season, uh, somewhat indefinitely. Now, I think with that you start to get into the, the heart of the Noahic Covenant. But I think we need to you know, take a second to kind of remind ourselves of what has transpired uh, leading up to this. Um, if you remember from the start of our looking at the Noahic Covenant, uh, we saw how you know, it, at the point that the covenant begins, back in uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, at that point, humanly speaking... Uh, God's covenantal purpose seems to have stymied. Uh, he had promised to, back in Genesis 3, He promised to redeem a people, to preserve the seed of the woman, uh, to judge His enemies, to judge the seed of the serpent. Uh, he had uh, promised that He would uh, be gathering a people and judging His enemies. Uh, that was God's covenantal promise. Uh, but then as you moved beyond Genesis chapter 3, it had seemed that that purpose had to a large degree, fallen by the wayside. Uh, sin was rampant. Uh, the sons of God were intermarrying with the daughters of men. Uh, in all of humanity, there was this one man that God uh, had turned his heart. Uh, one man had found grace and favor in God's eyes. Uh, to, to put a pretty fine point on it, by the time you get to the Noahic Covenant, if you're speaking from a purely human perspective, it appears that God is either unwilling or unable to deliver on His covenant promise to have a people and to judge His enemies. God has said He would do it, but it doesn't seem to be happening in the slightest. But in the, in the Noahic covenant and in the flood that's part of the Noahic covenant, uh, God is very undeniably forwarding His covenantal promises. He's clearly turned Noah's heart. He's uh, preserved Noah and his family on the ark. He's clearly judged the sinfulness of men. Um, God's tangible pursuit of His covenantal purpose has picked up in a hurry when you get into the Noahic covenant. Uh, what seemed to have been set by the wayside uh, has kind of resumed center stage again. Uh, God very clearly again is gathering His people and judging His enemies. Uh, you see all of that with, with the flood and the preservation of Noah and his family. And then... You know, when the waters of the flood have receded, uh, Noah offers his sacrifice, and then God declares that rather than wiping out all of humanity again, he'll allow history to move forward. And he'll do so because the hearts of men are wicked through and through. Now, it seems at that point important to bear in mind that when God said those words, when God said uh, that he would preserve the order of creation because all men were wicked, the only men alive 
were the men whom he had brought through the flood. Uh, the judgment, very clearly, the judgment of God's enemies had not given his people righteous hearts. He had judged the sinfulness of men in the flood, but the people still left, who he had brought through the flood, still had sinful hearts. Now, certainly, as we've said before, not all of Noah's sons even uh, were righteous men. Uh, they weren't um, all of the elect. But what God says there uh, of man's heart, or the, the, the sinfulness of men's hearts, that applies not just to, the, to Ham and his descendants, but it applies to everybody alive at the time. It applies to Noah as well as it does to Ham. Um, bearing the sin of the wicked under a flood of judgment clearly hasn't done a thing for the wickedness in Noah's heart. And since the judgment of God's enemies doesn't change the hearts of God's people, then the God who is clearly satisfied by sacrifice, as you see in verse 21, is going to allow history to grind forward. Now do you start to get a sense of what is happening there in the Noahic covenant? God has shown the power of His covenant you know, to, to Noah and his family, you know, the only eight people, I suppose, the only eight people are left, left alive in all of creation. Um, the barrenness of the earth was clear testimony that God was able to judge his enemies. There was no doubt that God could judge his enemies when he wanted to. There likewise was no doubt that God could deliver his people from that judgment. Now, God very clearly had the ability and the power right now to do what he had promised that he would do. But nonetheless, history would move forward under God's control, under God's will, because the God who was satisfied was by sacrifice had a larger purpose to accomplish. He wasn't just going to judge the wicked. He also was going to deal with the hearts of His people. Um, God's central concern here uh, is dealing with His people. Uh, the flood that's judged sin can't wash away the sin in Noah's heart. And it's that heart, it's the heart of God's people that God wants. And so therefore, the God who has shown that He can literally turn back the clock of creation. If you remember from last week, we saw how when the, the flood, God was reverting creation really to the second day of creation. Now the God who has the ability to do that uh, is restraining His judgment and allowing history to move forward so that in the fullness of time, he could provide the sacrifice that will deal with that wickedness in his people's hearts that can't be addressed by simply judging the sin of the wicked. Uh, in the flood, God is showing that he's able right now to met out judgment. He's able to uh, deliver on his covenantal promise of judgment, but he's restraining his judgment uh, so that he can provide a sacrifice for his people. Uh, you know, God is shattering any illusions that mankind might have had uh, that he was unable to fulfill his covenantal promise. Uh, the, uh, the withholding, the restraining of judgment, uh, the restraining of the ultimate redemption of his people uh, isn't an indication of God's inability. It's an indication of his patience. Uh, he's pursuing the purpose and he's waiting as that purpose is accomplished. And it seems to me that that is the ultimate message of the Noahic covenant and the ultimate contribution of the covenant to the overall progression of God's covenantal purposes. Uh, the covenant testifies 
uh, that God's power is so vast and His faithfulness to His covenant is so unshakable that He could at any moment bring all of the world into judgment. But yet He restrains His judgment for the purpose of gathering in His people and changing their hearts. Um, and it's in that that you see how the, the common grace elements of the Noahic covenant aren't the whole of the covenant. Uh, really, they're not even the real point of the covenant. Uh, preserving regularity within the creation isn't God's ultimate purpose in the Noahic covenant. It's more the result of His purpose. Uh, God's purpose is to show His ability uh, to judge, His ability to uh, bring the covenant to its consummation, uh, and to show why He is restraining it for a time. Uh, his purpose isn't to uh, fundamentally to guarantee day after day, season after season. So to focus on the common grace elements of the covenant, seems to me, is to kind of major on the minors. Uh, and in fact, you end up missing the real point of the covenant because you're emphasizing uh, the wrong thing. Uh, God in the Noahic covenant is displaying His ability to end created reality this very moment. And He shows also that His reason for preserving it uh, is that He's pursuing His covenantal purpose to have a people. Uh, that's the, the true intention of the Noahic covenant. And it seems to me to be particularly borne out when you consider how the New Testament treats and views the Noahic covenant. Certainly if you want to understand how a portion of the, or understand the purpose of a portion of the Scripture, uh, knowing that Scripture interprets Scripture, the way to find that meaning is to look uh, throughout the Scriptures. And when you look in the New Testament, uh, it's that emphasis that the Noahic covenant receives. Uh, there isn't really any emphasis on the common grace elements. Uh, the emphasis is more on this emphasis that God is able to judge at any moment and His restraint is not because of His inability uh, to act, but it's because of His patience and His long-suffering. Uh, for instance, Jesus speaks of Noah and God's dealings with him uh, in two places. Uh, there are parallel passages um, that, you know, of note. One is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, and then also in Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. And in both of those instances, uh, Christ's point is precisely the point that uh, I've been uh, presenting this morning. That he, he makes the point that just as in the days of Noah, God displayed His ability to instantly judge all of creation, so in like manner, God can and will instantly judge all of creation at Christ's return in the final judgment. Uh, the, the, the lesson, the truth that Christ is extracting from the Noahic covenant uh, most fundamentally isn't the continuation of order or the continuation in the order of time, but the point uh, is God's demonstration that that continuation and that regularity is the result of His patience. And that order and regularity will end instantaneously once God has gathered all of His people. Uh, the emphasis isn't on the perpetuation of days. Uh, the, the emphasis is on uh, God's faithfulness to His covenant and His ability to act on it uh, when He wills. Uh, the Apostle Peter also deals with Noah and Noahic covenant uh, explicitly in two places, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And again there, the emphasis is on God's patience as He preserves His people and restrains His judgment on His enemies. 
Um, but probably the most revealing place in the New Testament that deals with the, uh, the Noahic covenant comes in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, uh, Peter deals with essentially the, the truth, the central truth that we're to take from the flood. Um, now if you're familiar with 2 Peter, uh, there Peter's, among other thing is, things, is confronting uh, some false teachers who had infiltrated the church. And evidently, among their other errors, these false teachers were teaching that Christ wouldn't return in judgment the way that He had said that He would. Now in uh, verses 1 through 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter refers to those people, he uh, refers to them as people who take the regular uh, uninterrupted passage of days as evidence that things always will continue in the way that they have proceeded in the past. Essentially their uh, supposition is that God is unable to break in and interrupt this inexorable movement of time. It's always going to go the way that it's gone in the past. But then in verses 5 and 6 of 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this. He says, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Now what Peter's saying there is that those false teachers who use the regularity of time as a reason to doubt God's final covenantal judgment, uh, those who use His restraint as a reason to doubt His power, they have forgotten the flood. Uh, they've forgotten what God did in the days of Noah. And then in verse 7, Peter goes on from there to say, "...but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men." And there in verse 7, Peter says that the heavens and the earth are preserved by what? They're preserved by the same Word, uh, the Word of God. Uh, the Word, in a sense, the Word of Genesis 8, verses 21 and 22. Uh, the, he the, um, the heavens and the earth are preserved by God's promise of enduring order and regularity. Uh, the point that Peter's making from the Noahic covenant, from the flood, is that in the flood, God has shown His ability to judge. He's shown that He can do it. And the absence of judgment now doesn't testify to God's inability. It testifies to God's restraint. And then in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter 3, Peter gives the reason for that restraint. He says God is waiting, God is restraining His judgment in order that all might come to repentance. Now we know as good... Reformed scholars that there, um, Peter, when he refers to all, he's referring back to uh, the beloved to whom he had, uh, referred in verse 8 and also back in verse 1. Uh, Peter is speaking there of fellow Christians. Uh, so God is waiting for all to come to repentance in the sense of waiting for all of the elect to come to repentance. So um, the, the, lar the larger point that Peter is making is that God is able to bring judgment right now. His delay is for the purpose of gathering in the fullness of His people. Now, that seems very clearly to be the use, the pretty uniform use that the New Testament makes of the Noahic covenant, uh, the central truth that the New Testament draws out of that covenant. You know, not 
the admittedly present common grace elements of the covenant, but rather uh, the central truth is this clear cataclysmic testimony that God's covenantal purposes are certain. Uh, His restraint doesn't indicate His inability, it indicates His patience. Now that's the central point of the Noahic covenant, and I think that oftentimes in most accounts of it, you miss that driving point of the covenant. Um, but it does, from the New Testament, seem to me to be uh, the central point of the, New, of the Noahic covenant. And it's also, incidentally, uh, the point at which uh, the Noahic covenant presses itself upon y'all, as y'all are preparing uh, for ministry, uh, and also then as you enter into the ministry in due course. Uh, judgment, I've said it 20 times already, you're probably sick of me saying it, but I'll say it again. Judgment is withheld in order that the work of the gospel might continue. God is restraining judgment not because He's unable to bring it or because He doesn't care enough to bring it, but rather He is restraining judgment because He has a purpose. He has a purpose to claim and turn the hearts of His people. That's the only reason that God is preserving creation from day to day. You know, to put a... uh, more personal point on it, the only reason that y'all are sitting in this classroom listening to me this morning rather than standing in realms of glory worshiping Christ is because Christ is preserving the world so that y'all can go and tell others about Jesus. That's the only reason that you're here instead of there. Now, if you give yourself to things other than uh, your preparation for the ministry or if you're, once you're in the ministry, if you give your time and your heart and your attention to things other than the ministry, uh, if you give yourself at any point to things other than that gospel work, then you very literally are abusing the patience of God. Uh, It's very easy uh, to have your heart, uh, to have your time and your attention and your energy uh, consumed by all manner of distractions. Uh, They can be consumed by hobbies, uh, by pastimes, uh, by relatively unimportant things that people tell you are essential to ministry but actually really aren't. Um, It's very easy to have your heart and your efforts distracted away from the central gospel work of telling others about Christ and through that testimony uh, having God turn their hearts as He intends to do. And it seems as if um, the, the easiness of being distracted very often just as with the false teachers in Second Peter, it's very often fueled by the regularity of time and the regularity of duty. Uh, when you, if you, for instance, with preaching, if you preach with some degree of irregularity, then every time, at least it was for me, every time you get ready to preach, it's it's a big event, uh, something you prepare for uh, uh, spiritually and otherwise. But then, when it becomes a regular practice, if you've preached for the last 50 Sundays and you'll preach for the next 50 Sundays and you can assume that the service will go largely the same way that it has the last 50 Sundays. But then this week you have the chance to maybe skimp on your sermon preparation a little bit to go to a concert or spend some extra time doing something you like or um, whatever the case may be. If you have a chance this week to skimp on your preparation for the Lord's service, the temptation to skimp on preparation arises. You know, the service is always the same in the past. It'll be the same in the future. It'll be the same this week. Uh, so why neglect other opportunities 
uh, to spend time in the gospel work? Uh, why not shift your priorities? Um, if you uh, go into a, a pastor, if you're a solo pastor even, the temptation increases uh, because there's nobody checking a time card. Uh, there's nobody at the office to see whether you come in or not or how long you're there, how diligently you work while you're there. Uh, the temptation to allow other things to consume your time uh, can be rather overwhelming. And it's certainly the same in seminary as you're preparing, as you're preparing for the ministry. But if you allow your focus to be taken off of your preparation of ministry now and your ministry then, uh, if you allow your attention to be diverted from the gospel work, uh, then you are very literally wasting time. Time is here for the gospel work and uh, not for our own uh, time-wasting expertise. Certainly I'm an expert in it. I imagine y'all can be as well. And I think that is one of the things that the Noahic Covenant oppresses upon us, uh, that our days haven't been given to us to fill with uh, triviality. Uh, day passes into day and season passes into season because God is preserving the earth so that His gospel can go out. Uh, and particularly for those called into the ministry, uh, that places a great burden uh, of responsibility upon us, it seems to me. But it also, you know, in, in thinking of um, the thinking of how to potentially preach or apply areas of covenant theology, uh, this particular element of the Noahic covenant also has a tremendous application for uh, people in congregations uh, where you'll serve. Uh, the imperative for them is to use their time not for laziness, not for self-indulgence, but for evangelism, for the work of the gospel. And what I've just said about us as men either in or training for the ministry uh, applies to them as well. Um, time is preserved so that they, as God's people, can take the gospel out, uh, not so that they can have their, their hearts consumed with everything else. Um, that orients, it seems to me, the priorities of God's people. And I think it can also be, uh, I have found it to be particularly uh, challenging and comforting to elderly or aged saints. Uh, oftentimes, you all probably know, uh, as people get older, they can start to feel somewhat useless. Um, they, you know, they... Um, they no longer have the health or the abilities that they once did. Uh, they feel like because of that, their days don't have as much meaning as they once had. Um, they say, you know, they can't, I can't do all the things I used to do, and because of that, um, I'm just kind of wiling my time away until the Lord comes back for me. Um, I think it's, it's important for elderly saints to recognize uh, that the meaning of time doesn't come from your hobbies, doesn't come from your occupation, it doesn't come from anything other than the gospel work. Now, certainly, you ought to be pursuing the gospel work in your occupation and in your hobbies, um, but when you have to change uh, some of those secondary things, that doesn't divest your time of its meaning. Uh, the meaning of our days comes from the gospel work, and you can um, be, at much, be as much at work in the gospel um, in a nursing home as you can be uh, walking around the streets. Certainly there's a 102-year-old lady in the congregation where I serve in a nursing home who 
probably does more gospel work than uh, maybe even than me. <laughs> um, you don't have to be, you don't have to have young years uh, to have for your your time to have its purpose. Uh, I think that can be a, a challenge and a comfort uh, to Christians who are more advanced in their years. Um, likewise, it can be pressed on those who are not Christians. Uh, the fact that God hasn't yet judged non-Christians doesn't testify to His powerlessness. It doesn't testify to His non-existence. It testifies to His long-suffering and His mercy. Uh, and the, the proper response to it is not to scoff at God, uh, but to repent and to find refuge in Christ. So just, you know, um, you might think those are uh, weak applications, but they seem to me at least some uh, suggestions for how to think about uh, applying uh, covenant theology uh, to a congregation and to your own hearts as you consider the scriptures and preach them. Um, you know, from within the Noahic covenant, uh, from the very start, uh, God, His activity in that covenant served as uh, a clear evidence in spite of all appearances that He was able to keep His covenant and that His restraint in bringing the fullness of, of His covenant to pass was the result not of His inability, but of His purpose. Uh, there was a redemptive covenantal purpose to the movement of time. Uh, and there still is this morning. And I think for that reason, uh, some of the core truths of the Noahic covenant are every bit as relevant in preaching today uh, as they would have been to Noah and his family as they stood on a, a barren earth following the flood. Um, but to, you know, to keep moving along, um, we've seen uh, the purpose of the Noahic covenant. We've seen the use that the New Testament makes of that covenant. Uh, but before we uh, move on past Noah, I just want to point out once more here at the conclusion of the Noahic covenant something that we noticed at the beginning of the covenant as well. Uh, that's uh, these two paired emphases that we noticed last week at the start of the covenant. First of all, just like we saw last week at the start of the covenant, um, we continue to see at the covenant's close that God's covenant of grace contains both gracious, sovereign, divine initiative on the one hand and also necessary obedience, obedient response. Uh, the Kleinian distinction or the Kleinian dichotomy that we've mentioned several times uh, between a promise covenant and a law covenant is simply non-existent. Uh, now certainly on the one hand, uh, the continuation of creation, the order of the days and the seasons, etc., all that certainly is undeniably unconditional. In fact, it's the most certain kind of unconditional. Um, God says that the days will continue because of man's sin. And if that's the driving cause, and it's pretty certain it will continue without our contributing anything to it, uh, being the sinners that we are. So there certainly is a, an unconditional element to the covenant. But the Noahic Covenant, as hopefully I've shown you, uh, is vastly more than just that. Uh, the, covenant, the Noahic Covenant is vastly more than just the order of creation, uh, the orderliness of days. And in its fullness, in its preserving creation in order to draw in the elect, uh, the covenant calls for and requires the faith of the elect. Uh, God is graciously, uh, unconditionally preserving creation while 
He sovereignly and unilaterally draws in His elect. But in order for them to be drawn in, they have to have faith. Now certainly God gives them that faith, but it's a faith that they must have. Uh, it's not, there's there's a, a richer complexity to the Noahic covenant than just the absolute unconditional promise of day after day, season after season. Uh, there's also the a requisite, obedient response of God's people. Uh, the covenant's concerned with more than just common grace. So that on the one hand, we have that, that paired emphasis. God's covenant of grace contains both uh, gracious divine initiative and also a necessary response from man. But secondly, uh, we also see again uh, the, the paired emphasis that God's covenant of grace is both particular and broad. You know, on the one hand, it's pretty clear that the covenant here with Noah is quite broad. You know, the, the, the seasons, all the common grace elements clearly affect all of humanity. But even in that breadth of blessing, the focus is on a very particular number. The focus is on the elect. All of mankind receives common benefits but those benefits are received for the purpose of bringing redemption to a select few, to the elect. Uh, the, the, the covenant is simultaneously broad and extremely particular. Uh, you know, to speak in terms of the historical events of the flood, Ham, you know, we, Ham is the, more, the, the less desirable of Noah's sons. Ham gets to be on the boat but the boat was provided by God in order to save Shem and Japheth, his better brothers, so to speak. And in the same way, we all today, reprobate and elect alike, we all get to live in a world that has orderly time, that has regular seasons, that has restrained judgment. We all get to live in this world. But God is providing that order and that restraint specifically to save his elect. Uh, the covenant is simultaneously broad and particular. Um, now certainly a lot more could be said about uh, the Noahic covenant than that. You, you might think I've said that more than need to be There's a, a lady in the congregation where I serve who she'll tell you about somebody who's sick or something like that and then she'll stop mid-sentence and say, well, I've already told you more than I know. And she'll... Stop, which I find to be a funny saying. I've told you more than I know. Y'all might think I've told you more than I know about the Noahic Covenant. But, um, but it seems to me you could say more. Uh, but in the interest of time, we probably should stop with that. I think we've hit the highlights of the Noahic Covenant. Um, but we do have a minute or two before the break if you have any questions or we can answer when we get back to He, he, he does mention it briefly, but he, yeah, he doesn't give it a whole lot of attention. Um, it, my, my opinion on it seems to me that um, the, the, the vision that Peter has, I believe it's in Acts 10, with the lowering of the 
the sheet and the, the, the divine declaration that essentially all foods are now clean. Um, it seems to me that that is the controlling principle um, that would now tell you that the eating of blood is allowed. And in the Jerusalem Council, uh, I think it's clear even though God was giving, in any number of ways, God was giving clear indications of the broadening of the mission to the Gentiles, uh, some of the uh, the moving beyond some of the dietary law, some of the ceremonial law. I think even though the clarity of revelation came pretty quickly, it took a while for even for the apostles to come to terms with exactly what it meant. Um, and so it seems to me that even though you have that vision given to Peter temporarily prior to the Jerusalem Council, it seems as if in the Jerusalem Council the apostles were still coming to terms with what the new phase in redemption meant uh, and were scaling back dietary laws obviously in a very, to a very drastic extent um, and um, as time moved forward after that uh, they would have come to a greater realization of the fullness of what it meant and allowed the eating of blood as well. I mean, to, the prohibition on eating blood doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in light of Peter's vision. I think they were still working it out. And certainly you never, in the rest of the scriptures, even when you have, of course, granted Paul was normally dealing with specifically eating food offered to idols, um, but even in his discussion of dietary sorts of issues, uh, the prohibition on blood never surfaces again. Um, so it seems to me that it probably was a, a provisional sort of measure that was moved beyond, that we are allowed to move beyond today if we're so moved. Seems to me. It's certainly, I, I don't, there's not much blood consumed in this country. There are in others, obviously. Um, it's something we don't often think about, but... Uh, yeah. It, um, in... Uh, I live, I live for several years in, in Scotland where there is some in some of the traditional um, sausages and things there is blood in them and it, it is a matter of conscience for some people in cultures where it is consumed on a somewhat regular basis I mean we don't give it much thought because we don't never confronts us but in, in cultures where it confronts people, Christians it is a matter of conscience for some but it's, it seems to me that um, it's allowable The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.